Hello and welcome to episode 89 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is Mihai Sora, Project Director of the Australia PNG Network at Sydney's Lowy Institute. Uh, and, oh, I'm sorry, at Sydney's Lowy Institute, Mihai argues that Australia's financial aid program in the Pacific has not delivered the hope for influence and that Australia must stop viewing the Pacific as its own neighborhood to fix. Mihai Sora, how are you? Hi, Salvatore. Real pleasure to be here today. All right. Well, sorry for flubbing the introduction. I'll try to make it up to you. Let me start out with, is China's Solomon Island deal really so important? We, we keep hearing about it in the news and how it's a, you know, a tragedy, a travesty for Australia, but does it really matter that much? The, the China Solomon's security deal is a real wake-up call for the status quo in the region, the strategic status quo, if you will, and also a real wake-up call for Australia's relationships with Pacific Island countries. So a lot of questions have come out about, uh, you know, the depth, the resilience um, of, of Australia's relationships with Pacific Island countries. Um, as I've said in my commentary, Australia's relationships with the Pacific are not fragile, but uh, they certainly could be deeper uh, and more comprehensive. And I'm very keen to, to explore that with you today. And you do have two recent columns in the Australian Financial Review about the Solomon Islands. Um, look, given that Australia is a major aid donor in the region, how can its Pacific relationships ever truly be peer-to-peer? -peer? Aren't they doomed to be Australia as the big brother in the neighborhood? Uh, you know, corralling its wayward children into doing its own bidding? I think what it comes down to, and this is something that, uh, you know, over over many years now, dozens, if not hundreds of, of academics and policymakers in Australia, New Zealand, and certainly across the Pacific have been, have been calling out for, which is um, essentially a, a reset into Australia's, uh, a reset of Australia's perception of the Pacific. Um, and uh, truly acknowledging uh, the sorts of messages that we've been hearing from the Pacific for decades uh, with regards to that peer-to-peer that -peer status that you refer to. Now, the development program that Australia um, provides uh, to the Pacific, that is one component of uh, you know, our bilateral relationships with the region, but that doesn't make a, a fully formed relationship Pacific Island countries have been calling for everything from, uh, you know, a change in the tone and the tenor of rhetoric coming from Australian leaders, Australian commentators, you know, policy analysts such as myself, um, everything down to calling for specific changes to uh, barriers to people-to-people uh, -to -people links in the region, uh, barriers to further economic integration. These are things that encompass uh, bilateral relations, uh, you know, between countries normally where Australia has fallen short of in the Pacific. So speaking um, particularly there about economic ties and people to people ties. Well, you're a former diplomat in the region. I mean, how do you compete or how does Australia's current diplomats there, how do they compete with Chinese offers, which I mean, China always makes it sound like it's friendship, it's it's elder brother <laughs> adoption uh, comes with no strings attached. Now, I'm not sure that's actually true, but what is the on-the-ground competition like between Australian and Chinese diplomacy? I think there are, there are layers 
of sentiment uh, across the Pacific, and of course, a huge diversity of perspectives. There are, you know, almost 20 um, Pacific Island countries, each with their own particular historical, cultural, uh, political, social identities, language groups. Um, and Australia is generally, um, you know, positively viewed in communities across the Pacific. We have very uh, uh, long-standing historical ties and a lot of uh, great examples of positive contributions to regional peace and stability, positive contributions to uh, to people-to-people -people links. Um, at the political level, it does tend to get a little bit uh, uh, a little bit more uh, patchy, if you will. Um, there are a lot of instances where um, the regional perception, as as I understand it, has been that Australia has prioritised uh, global or, or national interests above regional interests. Now, this might be specific to individual uh, Pacific countries, but uh, also um, divergences there with um, priorities that the region as a whole has articulated, including in conversations with Australia, Australia being a member of the Pacific Island Forum. So it is part of that conversation, but sometimes it is also separate to that conversation. But are the countries in the region particularly interested in regional issues or are they out for their own national gain? Well, every country uh, must, of course, prioritize uh, its own prosperity. In the Pacific, there's an understanding that uh, individual prosperity uh, has to be a collective project. Um, so the priorities that the Pacific Island countries have identified um, <clears throat> most recently and, and, and finally getting um, enough airtime uh, is uh, climate change and the impact that has on Pacific national security and human security. So looking there at uh, impacts on individual communities, economies, um, contributing to drivers of, of instability and conflict. Um, so, you know, uh, just just back to your, your earlier point about how does Australia compete? You know, in many ways, um, the, the, the Countries in the Pacific and communities in the Pacific have been spelling spelling it out for for Australia for decades now, and and really the the dynamic is more about um, you know this perception that Australia is keeping the Pacific at arm's length, um, at the same time looking to be connected on its own terms, you know, during a, a crisis, a disaster response. So you know a lot of dualities in Australia's posture. Um, and I think Pacific Island countries' relationships with China, they're not, um, they're not setting out to replace Australia. The relationships that Pacific Island countries are pursuing with China are delivering for them, is, that's the, the perception, is they're delivering for those Pacific Island countries something that isn't typically part of their relationships with Australia. So looking there at the trade and economic links. Yeah, I'm curious about this difference in the way Australia and China do diplomacy in the region, because you emphasized it's the Australia connection, people-to-people -people ties, uh, and you've also emphasized the this the holding countries at, at arm's length, which I think implies you know immigration issues, and you know there's certainly been no pressure in Australia not to have friendly relations with, with Pacific countries. Whereas China seems to go straight to the top, right? Instead of looking, and actually China is generally unpopular in the countries that have joined its Belt and Road Initiative, but the projects it proposes benefit elites and benefit people who are connected with governments, maybe at the expense of their own people. Is that a, a fair characterization of the Australia-China competition in the region? 
Look, it's a very broad way to look at it, but uh, I'd say that you know it does broadly reflect the general trends that we're seeing. And um, this is part of uh, the challenge before Australia right now. Um, how does it um, gain or regain, depending on how well you thought it was going, how does it gain that influence that the Australian government is looking for in the Pacific? But even before we do that, we really need to understand what do we mean by that influence? Do we mean Pacific Island governments being more receptive to Australian positions on international issues, more accepting of Australia's national position on things like climate change? Or do we mean that more organic influence that comes from uh, you know, shared identities, shared cultural spaces? Um, and when it comes to China's presence in the region, they're not looking for all of those same things themselves. As you say, China has been very effective at cultivating uh, top-level political relationships. Um, community sentiment is certainly, you know, uh, I'd say more mixed or controversial um, with regards to, to China's more recent presence. I should also caveat, you know, for this discussion, it is important to recognize that um, when we're talking about a Chinese presence in the Pacific, China, through waves of, of migration, you know, generations of families ha have been um, present in the Pacific for over 100 years. So, you know, there are also deep, long-standing ties there um, and, you know, layers of families that, that would have, um, you know, again, a, a very diverse sense of identity with respect to their, their Pacific Island country or their homeland in China, connections to Australia even. Um, what we're really speaking about now when we're, we're focusing on, on geopolitics and, and this contest for influence is this more recent push, you know, that is um, either driven by Beijing, depending on your perspective, or at least in concert with Beijing's strategic ambitions for the region. So that's really what we're focusing on today. You know, it's certainly not second guessing or challenging, you know, the, the presence of, of Chinese migrants in the Pacific for, for over 100 years. Right. But uh, I mean, most of us here in Australia probably don't know that much about the Pacific. I mean, I didn't even know you said there were how many countries in, in the Pacific region? Well, uh, a number of, of uh, sort of subnational or not quite uh, national entities. You know, there is still the, the legacy of, of colonization and ongoing processes okay. of decolonization. But we're looking at close to 20 uh, Pacific Island nations. So 20 or so, depending how you count. And and if I don't even know how many countries there are, never mind naming them. I, I mean, I could name more countries in Africa than I could name countries in the Pacific. Is Australia's Pacific strategy really about engaging with the area, or is it really just about keeping China out? Look, Australia's um, diplomatic presence and political and cultural connections with the Pacific predate uh, the geopolitical tensions in the region by decades. Uh, you know, we have shared histories um, going back before World War II and certainly since World War II. So it, it, I think it, it would be very unfair to, um, say, frame the discussion in terms of um, Australia and China vying for influence in the Pacific or, or frame Australia's presence in the Pacific as being a reaction to China. I think what we're seeing is we're seeing um, an Australian policy reaction to an increasing Chinese official and economic and now security presence in the Pacific. But Australia has been present in the region. You know, it is part of part of the region and Australia has provided security assistance and development assistance for, for decades um, before 
this question of China's role in the region even came about. Of course, for Australians, Australia is Australia. But for the Chinese leadership, Australia is often considered a kind of sub-hegemon or cat's paw, or I think the, the Chinese term is a running dog for the United States, whatever that actually is. I don't think anyone's ever been able to figure out that metaphor. Um, where does the U.S. fit in all this? I mean, in the Chinese picture of the Pacific, I think Australia is somehow subcontracted to manage the Pacific on behalf of the United States. But where, do, I mean, I, I take it for granted that that's not a, an accurate reflection of the true situation, but then what is the true situation of America's role in all this? So it looks certainly it's part of, uh, you know, Beijing's narrative to, um, as it undermines the, the rules-based order, um, it undermines um, Australia's independent foreign policy. Of course, Australia has, you know, extremely close cultural and, and security ties with the U.S. Um, Australia supports the, the rules-based order, you know, as, as articulated by a, a number of like-minded countries and, and as it is present in the Pacific. Um, you know, geography and history binds Australia to the Pacific um, independently of its relationship with the U.S. and certainly independently of, of geopolitical ties. The U.S., it is also present in the Pacific, although that's very much a question that's part of the debate right now is, um, you know, perceptions of um, absence uh, of the U.S. In, in parts of the Pacific or, you know, a historically more active and a more recent sort of uh, benign neglect, if you will. Um, this has prompted um, a reaction from, from the U.S. Uh, in, in terms of Solomon Islands specifically, um, the U.S. intends to establish an embassy in Honiara after an absence of some 30 years in the region. Of course, um, the Pacific was a theater of, of war in, in World War II, and Solomon Islands specifically um, was the site of, of many heated battles between um, Allied forces and uh, the, the Japanese forces at the time. So the U.S. is historically a part of the Pacific. It's not as visible, it's not as present today. Um, as countries like Australia and New Zealand. We might see something different in the future, you know, very happy to, to explore what that might look like as well. When it comes to questions of the, the, the rules-based order and the connection of regional security in the Pacific to global security, the US has to be a partner. It has to be a party to that discussion, it has to be an actor in the region. Um, it, it is an actor in the region. And, and really the question there is, is um, what else, what, what, what in addition can the US and should the US be doing? Um, but importantly, how does it um, increase its presence while fitting into existing regional architecture, existing regional definitions and conceptions of, of security? The Pacific hasn't been, you know, hasn't been static since, since the US left parts of it. Uh, regional security um, is a hot topic in the Pacific, has been a, a major topic of, of regional discussions. Um, what we're seeing now is um, a, a need to better articulate regional security in light of um, increasing geopolitical competition around the globe, but now becoming more evident in the Pacific. If we look beyond Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands, which kind of form a, you know, kind of form a, a an outer rim of Australia's immediate environment, if you want to think of it that way. Is there much going on that we should be aware of in the rest of the Pacific region? Uh, I mean, 
our news just doesn't seem to report Pacific issues. Uh, we occasionally hear about Fiji in the news, but only if there's a you know some kind of political problem there. And and the rest of the Pacific almost seems not to exist in the Australian news. We hear much more about Ukraine, which is so much farther away than we do about anything going on in the Pacific. Is there anything on your radar screen for the wider Pacific region? Well, look, this is um, at the heart of, of the discussion now when we're talking about regional security and, and resetting of relationships between traditional partners um, in light of new partners. The Pacific very much exists every day of the year, every hour of the day, and, and so on. And while uh, mainstream media in countries like Australia or the US doesn't cover the Pacific extensively um, on a day-to-day -day basis, um, as has been said by, by many other commentators and people that have dedicated their careers, uh, if not their lives, to, to improving um, regional security and, and relationships between Australia and the Pacific, the Pacific is very much aware of what's going on in the rest of the world. Um, part of uh, the challenge before Australia today is how do we incorporate, how do we build that, um, you know, other academics have said that Pacific literacy within Australia and by extension, uh, other like-minded countries. Uh, you know, these countries are there every day, whether or not we're reporting on them and, and things are happening. And what we're seeing with um, China's increased presence in the region is that it's not only the sort of the hard security elements of, of stability and political conflict in the Pacific that affect uh, the national security of Australia, but also their prosperity. You know, they're, they're building closer ties with China because that is perceived as an, as an opportunity to access markets, um, trade, commerce, to, to access economic independence, something that the Australian aid program cannot possibly provide um, and shouldn't be tasked to, to do so. Um, so, you know, how do we build that um, more organic awareness and understanding of the Pacific. Well, I mean, why? let me push back on that a little bit. Why, why shouldn't an aid program be tasked with helping promote economic independence? I, I mean, after all, you know, teach a man to fish. Uh, shouldn't we be teaching the poor countries of the Pacific Islands how to fend for themselves? Well, look, of course, and I'm, I'm speaking in sort of in, in very broad terms. The aid program does have, uh, you know, economic development activities. What I'm speaking to is is really that that actual trade and the the economic independence that comes from the free flow of business and labor and people. So the the economic program certainly does focus. You know, there are there are technical programs um, to do with 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 agriculture, governance programs, business assistance programs, all of these technical solutions. But um, I'm, I'm speaking there really about the free flow of capital and people and genuine commercial business activities that can contribute to Pacific nations' incomes in a, in a direct and immediate way. But it seems that, uh, I, I mean, I, again, I'm not very, I should be much more familiar with the programs. My understanding is that there are actually work programs in Australia for at least some of the Pacific Island states, whereas in China, the activity seems to be the opposite direction of uh, Chinese nationals going to the Pacific Islands to do business as opposed to providing jobs offshore. I doubt many Pacific Islanders get work visas to China. Um, isn't Australia already doing a lot in that space? I think so. China's economic um, activity in the Pacific, it's, it's really around that resource extraction um, and the construction of infrastructure. 
So uh, the majority of uh, minerals, logs, um, fisheries, resources from the Pacific uh, are sold to China. So there's income from selling those things. Um, and then the other economic, the, the more, more visible economic activity is the construction of infrastructure. And you're right that uh, typically Chinese workers will get flown in to, to construct those projects. Um, and the intention, at least on paper, is that those projects, you know, in, in building that infrastructure, that will then facilitate economic activity. Um, and infrastructure is, is vitally important for, for every region, for every country, not just the Pacific. So um, uh, that is important that, that it continues to happen. Um, many people have been advocating for Australia, like-minded countries, US, Japan, um, to, to be more active in that infrastructure space. Um, but there are questions around, uh, you know, the bankability of projects. So it, it is a, um, a complicated space to be in. To speak to your point about what Australia is doing in terms of those economic links, there, there, are, uh, there is a, a Pacific uh, labour scheme, and that's uh, intended to provide access to Pacific workers um, on a short-term basis in, in key, um, for key tasks, so typically in, in agriculture. Um, your question is, isn't Australia doing a lot? I think the answer uh, throughout the Pacific and, and um, uh, from other Pacific analysts would be not really um, by, you know, in terms of the, the scale and the, the quantum of that activity, right. it is the right sort of activity, but it's not um, sufficient to, to turn around, you know, the economic destiny of a country. The debate well, is um, certainly doing more than any other country is, right? Well, sure, um, you know, and um, we are part of the Pacific, you know, Australia is, is the biggest, closest um, labor market or, or labor destination for the Pacific, potentially. Um, and it comes down to the barriers that Australia has in place. So we have seen proposals, um, both for uh, the result of a parliamentary inquiry into how Australia can build better relationships with the Pacific. And we've seen, um, you know, Australia's undergoing a, a national election, um, you know, which will be uh, resolved later this week. One of the proposals on the table by the, the Labor Party is to increase the scope of that labor access and to introduce a migration pathway dedicated to the Pacific. So this speaks to the volume question, but also it broadens that, that economic activity beyond that seasonal labor activity into other sectors of the economy. Right, though that would have the potential to simply hollow out Pacific Islands as the young and able-bodied come to work in Australia, depriving those own, their, their own countries of the use of their labor. It's certainly a very, very uh, challenging um, sort of flow to, to calibrate. What, what it does have is the immediate effect of increased remittances that would be sent back to Pacific okay. Island countries. So you have that immediate economic contribution. Um, over time, of course, it, it can't just be opening up Australia's labor market um, and uh, having, you know, the most able-bodied and, and well-skilled um, Pacific Islanders coming and working in Australia, and that be the end of the story. Of course, it does need to be balanced by skills and training uh, in the Pacific and this idea that, that people can contribute in Australia and then can also contribute back in their own economy. So it does need to be uh, a sustainable uh, flow back and forth. Now, we'll be wrapping up soon, but I did want to ask you and to return to the China security issue. And I wanted to ask you, does China have any 
let's say, legitimate security interests in the region. I mean, considering that China is building infrastructure, that China does have a lot of nationals in the region, doesn't that create a legitimate purpose for China to have a security presence in the region? And I'll piggyback on that. Uh, our viewer, Anthony, asks, is China seeking to displace Australia as the regional hegemon in order to control the trade routes through the Pacific? I think, um, you know, in in um, facilitating increased migration and, and economic flows um, into the Pacific, China um, finds itself with an obligation to, to protect those projects and even to provide security assistance to uh, Chinese communities in the Pacific. So, um, you know, it's very difficult to untangle that. Um, what analysts um, who are more skeptical of China's global ambitions are also looking at is what is the strategic dividend? You know, you you do you have um, you know most recent example of unrest in Honiara. The original primary target of, of a, a demonstration was was Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavare and, and the Parliament in Honiara. But the next easiest target was uh, Honiara's Chinatown district, which is typically targeted uh, in bouts of unrest. And so you're looking there at security concerns of, of Chinese nationals and Chinese Solomon Islanders. So um, you know, Australia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, and Fiji mobilized very quickly to provide security um, stabilization assistance, including providing protection to all of those threatened communities. But China would have that obligation to provide that as well. So it's about calibrating what that presence looks like. And if we're talking about a, a non-transparent security agreement that uh, facilitates uh, rotations of, of soldiers and access to resupply ships, um, how does that contribute to the domestic security concerns of, of Honiara and regional security needs? Well, we, we could imagine the uproar in Australia and the West more broadly had China sent peacekeeping troops to restore order. Um, but I mean, I'm, I'm playing the, the skeptic here a bit, but I mean, wouldn't they have every interest and potentially every right to send those troops? Well, ultimately, the question only comes down to um, the sovereign government. So Prime Minister Sugavare, um, it's really up to him and his government to decide who is allowed to send uh, an external um, security presence to oh, the country. Oh, but had he invited in Chinese troops, I mean, Australia certainly would not have been happy about that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are a lot of questions there about um, the public order management of Chinese police forces versus the you know decades-long security cooperation that Australia and the rest of the region has been providing to Solomon Islands and to, to other um, crises in the region. And we're talking there about different kinds of policing. Um, and for the region, I think getting a dose of Chinese public order management practices uh, would be something very new um, and I would say very concerning for them. Hmm. Now we have to wrap up. I do have one final viewer question. Uh, and it's a tough one. <laughs> it, that is, should there be an Australian Monroe Doctrine style uh, hegemony over the Pacific? I think, you know, we don't want to automatically um, superimpose Australia's strategic needs and, and interests onto the region. Um, any new regional security uh, agreement or settlement has to come from the region itself. Australia is a part of that conversation, but it's not the only voice in that conversation. 
So, you know, what I, what I expect to see is that in coming months, forums like the Pacific Island Forum, where all Pacific countries come to, they um, are in a position to articulate and agree on what kind of security architecture, what kind of security arrangements um, works best for the region. Um, we can't automatically assume that um, just as the Chinese base is, uh, you know, concerning to the, re to the region, that contrary-wise an Australian base would be welcome. And, and in fact, the opposite, which is why you don't have Australian bases littered throughout the Pacific. It's not something that the region has asked for. When they talk about regional security, um, they have other things on their mind, climate change, fisheries, economics, livelihoods, youth bulge, and so on. Um, and so whatever arrangement Australia comes to with the region, it has to be led by the region. Mihai Sora, thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks also to our producer, Nico Malian. The set director of the Center for Independent Studies is Tom Switzer. I'm Salvatore Babonis. Thank you for watching On Liberty. <laughs>